My next guest is an interest rate derivative marketer. Please welcome Daniel Wilson. Daniel, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Hey, doing okay. Doing all right. Yeah. First, I just want to start off saying thanks for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, happy to sit down and, you know, have the conversation. It's, you know, it's interesting what you're doing. So, you know, definitely want to give a little view into my world. Okay, cool. Well, let's get right into it. What do you do? So the technical answer is uh, I'm an interest rate derivative marketer. Generally speaking, not a lot of people know what that means. So if I'm breaking the ice with someone, I just tell people I'm a bank teller. Uh, and it typically gets a laugh, but uh, you know, <laughs> if people want to dive a little deeper, uh, I'm happy to do so, which is obviously what we're doing. Yep. But yeah, that's that's my go-to. So okay. uh, the um, yeah, so corporate derivative sales is what I do, but my exact job title is interest rate derivatives marketer. Okay, so who are your clients? Who do you so, work with? So yeah, so on a daily day in and day out basis, you know, I am two sides of the house, right? So there's the corporate side and there's the institutional side. Uh, when you have your institutional side that you're dealing with hedge funds, pension funds, et cetera. And then I am on kind of the opposite side of the house of that. So I'm on the corporate side. So I'm working with your AT&Ts, your John Deere's, your Constellation brands, your big corporate clients, those big investment grade names, all the way through down into the middle market. Um, and then even into every now and then we work on some, you know, true like commercial space deals as well. Okay, great. Now, for these corporate clients, why are they coming to you? Why are they needing these interest rate swaps? Why are they coming to you for swaps? Yeah, so generally speaking, from my seat, we are engaging in a hedge transaction, right? So we're hedging interest rate risk on the client side. And that's achieved through various products and various structuring of transactions. But broadly speaking, especially in the corporate and middle market space, you know, company XYZ, uh, enters into a credit agreement with a single bank, or maybe it's a large syndicated deal across multiple banks. These loans, if you're just thinking of a true commercial, could be, you know, one, three million dollars. Or if you get all the way up into the big corporate space, you know, you're doing a billion dollar loan that's syndicated across 20, 25 banks. But what I'm doing is most loans are pegged to LIBOR. So you're looking at, you know, a floating rate loan of LIBOR plus a spread, depending on the name, you know, it could be you know, 100 bips. When I say bips, you know, 100 bips is one percentage point, right? So, just, you know, I talk in BIPs a lot, but it's just because it's the world I come from. I'm used to it now. Right. So if I'm looking at, you know, a loan at LIBOR plus 1% or LIBOR plus 7%, essentially what's going to happen is LIBOR is a floating rate index. So every month, it uh, could be monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or annually, that is going to reset to whatever the index is at that time plus the spread. So, you know, over time, your interest expense associated with that loan could increase in some cases drastically depending on the broader financial market environment of what's going on, right? But right. if a company wants to say, okay, we know we have this floating rate risk and we just want to go ahead and fix it so that we don't have to deal with any increase, we want certainty of cash flows, et cetera, how do we do that? And so the kind of bread and butter product for accomplishing that specific goal would just be a vanilla interest rate swap. And what we're doing there is the bank and the client are just entering into a contract where we're saying the bank is going to step in and we're going to pay you one month LIBOR. This essentially is going to flow right through to your loan every month. And in exchange, you're going to pay us a fixed rate, which is the fixed rate swap component of that. Uh, and then the spread, obviously, on top of that. But all in, it fixes the rates. They know exactly what they're paying on that loan over the entire life of the contract. 
Okay. That's a great explanation. Now, how many transactions are you doing a day and are they mostly for hedging purposes and mostly vanilla swaps or are you doing more exotic things as well? Certainly, yeah. So in the commercial, in the middle market space, it is largely just, uh, you know, quote unquote, vanilla interest rate swap. Um, you know, you're, you're working with clients that maybe aren't as sophisticated, maybe have never even heard of an interest rate swap before, which is, you know, not uncommon. A lot of people have it. We forget that sometimes working in our world, we're just throwing around terminology and verbiage without realizing that, you know, maybe not everyone deals with this every day and doesn't, uh, you know, get a chance to look at it and hear the words that go along with it in the business. But yeah, so in the, in the commercial middle market space, it's largely vanilla transactions. When we do up, get up into the large middle market and corporate space, you know, the clients are much more sophisticated, uh, but it is core. It's not Nothing that I do on a day in day out basis is meant to be speculative, speculative, right? So they all are technically hedge transactions, but they, okay. they certainly do vary in complexity. So just for an example, we do a lot of pre-issuance hedging as well. So if a company knows that they're going to issue a bond three months from now, six months from now, whatever, you can go ahead and actually fix that right now for the issue in however many months down the road through a variety of products, whether it's a swaption, where it's essentially just an option to enter into a swap. Uh, you can do a, a forward starting swap that is just cash settled, what's called cash settled on the date of issuance. So you're going to enter into, you know, if you're going to issue a five-year bond three months from now, we're going to do a three-month forward starting five-year swap that is deemed to be cash settled on the day of issuance. So what's going to happen is, since the swaps carry what's called a mark-to-market, where every day as the market, as rates fluctuate throughout the day, the value of that contract fluctuates throughout the day. So when we do actually get to that point three months down the road where a company issues, one side is going to be in the money, one side is going to be out of the money. If the client is out of the money, they owe the bank. If the bank is out of the money, we pay the client. So you have effectively fixed that interest expense associated with the bond issuance, and you can do that however far in advance you want to look. Typically, you don't look beyond, or I haven't seen companies look beyond six months in advance, but where rates are right now, they're so low that companies just want to fix for as long as they can. Right, right. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, now you mentioned the current climate. Now, pre-COVID, what was it like? How often were you going out with clients? I'm guessing that's a big part of what you do as well. Definitely, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I would be considered if you're, you know, in the broader banking landscape, you know, front, middle, back office, I'd be considered a front office position, sales, client facing. The nature of the job is, right, so it's bifurcated between sales and trading. So I'm on the sales side and we have our traders. And when we're transacting with clients, I'm on the phone with my trader, you know, now I'm I'm in Bloomberg chat or, you know, a phone with my trader, but typically in a typical environment, I'm sitting three feet away from him on the trade floor and able to just yell at him to give me a price, him or her to give me a price. But then these days we're, we're transacting largely through Bloomberg chat. But that being said, in a normal pre-COVID environment, yeah, you know, a large portion of my day is spent, you know, either on the phone with clients, pitching for a deal that we want to win in terms of you know, when I say pitching for a deal, we want to win. Right. So uh, what I kind of alluded to earlier with a large like multi-bank syndicated deal, a lot of times what will happen is one bank will be awarded the swap. And then more often than not, you do syndicate out pieces of it to other banks, but you, you want to be the lead role there because you always get the lion's share of the revenue in those, in those instances. But on the road, traveling maybe five to 10 days a month oh, you know, really? on average. So you know, on the road quite a bit, meeting in front of people and meeting clients face-to-face. So that's a very enjoyable part of the job for me. But yeah, it is definitely client interaction heavy. Okay. So besides being on the road, when you're at work, what is a typical day for you? So I know you're, you said you're on the phone with clients a lot, you're pitching deals, but are you getting in early before the market opens and listening to research on your industry? And then after that, you start reaching out to the clients. Like, well, what is it like on a typical day? Yeah, um, I guess, 
you know, everyone's seen like a movie where they just see, you know, everyone sitting on a trade floor and that's just like phones ringing off the hook and everyone's just <laughs> screaming at each other over the top of their lungs. So it, it's definitely not crazy like that. My typical day, I'll get to the office maybe 7.30 and you know, I'm on Eastern time. So then a couple of hours until equity markets open, you have half an hour until the rates market opens. And yeah, exactly as you said, right? So I'm getting in, I'm kind of seeing what happened overnight, reading. A large portion of the job, honestly, is just if somebody calls, have something to talk about. So somebody calls and saying, what's going on with rates today? I can't just say, well, hold on, let me check for you. Like, I, I need to be able to sit there and say, well, broadly speaking, if I want to do a broad market overview or we want to drill down into fixed income specifically, a lot of that clients lead the conversation in that regard. But broadly speaking, a large portion of the job is just being up to speed on what's going on. Definitely broad market, but certainly within our kind of niche product area, which is the rates derivatives market. What's happening with swaps? What's happening with fixed income? Where are interests coming in? What's being issued today? What you know, loans are being syndicated today, et cetera. So the morning is definitely spent like that, getting up to speed, making sure you have all your ducks are in a row afternoon, whether there's a deal coming down the pike, you have to onboard the client. That's a big part of it as well. You know, regulation in my field is very, very heavy. So there are, before we're even able to transact with the client, you know, many steps. It's not like someone just calls me up and says, hey, I want to do a swap. It's a multi-step process to get them onboarded and actually in a place to transact in terms of getting the ISDA in place and all the other Dodd-Frank addendum documents. All of those have to be in order before you can even transact with someone. So that's a big part of it, keeping up with market news, et cetera. Okay. Now, outside of the work hours and outside of the workplace, nights, weekends, what may have you, how are you keeping up to speed on what's going on? Or are you doing anything to keep up to speed on what's going on in the markets? I guess this is more for people in general. What can they do to keep up to speed on what's going on? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just a matter of I read a lot. Mm -hmm. The overall majority of the push notifications I get on my phone are news-related articles, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Reuters, et cetera. Um, It's one of those things where even if you're not diving in headfirst and reading every word of every article that passes your view, you're seeing titles, you're skimming a couple paragraphs of each, you know, you're broadly keeping up with the global, not even global, it could be global if you want, you know, national landscape, wherever you're trying to keep up with. It's just a matter of not getting behind because, you right. know, I don't, I don't, I'm sure you felt it before. You know, I've ever like gone on vacation, haven't checked your phone for like three days or something like that. And you're just like, right. I you know, read a news article in a couple of days. And you're just like, I, you know, I need like three hours right now just so I can like get up to speed with what's happened. And with the amount of information we get these days, I, it's definitely tough. I don't think anybody can keep up with everything that's going on, but certainly try to just kind of consume as much news as I can. Okay, great. And now for you, you made that move from Houston to New York. So what was that transition like? Uh, it was interesting. So I had worked in Houston for a couple of years for a bank and I was an analyst within the sales and trading group as well. So if you want fix, so fixed income, currency, commodities. And within my group, we were in the rates derivatives and then dealing with FX as well. So up until my actually most recent move, because I did switch banks, but the last one I was at, I did cover as a almost entirely middle market. When I did move to New York, that's actually when my coverage kind of shifted was because I kind of made that move from analyst to associate as well. And then, uh, so I got more direct coverage and I was more on the corporate side. So kind of was exposed to, if you want to call like both sides of the house where I got like, you know, big corporate coverage as well as like the middle to small commercial client coverage. And then just personally speaking as well, moving up from Houston to New York, packed all my stuff into a U-Haul and drove it up here. So it was... 
it, it was a bit of an undertaking, but it was yeah, absolutely yeah. it was absolutely the right move. You know, yeah. I, I really enjoyed here. So yeah, no, definitely uh, had no regrets in uh, in that respect. Nice. All right. Now the skill sets you mentioned having to communicate with your different clients, your traders, research, all these different areas and people at different levels, as well as having to know the markets and being on top of the markets. What skill sets and characteristics do you think are most important to be successful in your line of business? Uh, well, I mean, obviously you have to be hardworking. There, there is a lot that goes into it on a day in, day out basis, whether it's the workload, especially as an analyst, if you're keeping up with, depending on the amount of more senior personnel that you're supporting. There's going to be very work heavy in terms of whether it's onboarding, whether it's putting decks together for for pitches, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, hardworking is definitely on top of it, but more so than anything, it's just willingness to learn, quite honestly. Um, nothing about my job I knew coming out of school. You know what I mean? Broadly speaking, right. I was a business management major with a minor in finance. Did I know what uh, uh, how to do an MPV calculation? Yes. Did I know how to discount right. a cash flow? Yes. But th those are things if you take a basic finance course, you can learn, you know, very, very quickly. So it's one of those things where, you know, when you come out of school, don't kind of be trapped into a box or something in terms of where you want to go, because I had no idea that what I do right now even existed six years ago. So it's just one of those things where that in terms of just what I think the most important characteristic is, it's just got to be that willingness to learn and the willingness to learn on your own. Because I kind of, I don't know how far into background you want to get, but when I kind of know what I want to go into into banking or whatnot, uh, yeah. I mean, I even yeah. remember sitting down with you uh, at Investco yeah. when, uh, you know, I just had questions about broadly, you know, investment banking, but what does it mean? We spent 30 minutes every Friday or every other Friday or something like that, where I would just, we were talking about DCM, ECM, you know, whatever. Um, right. Just stuff like that. Because I heard these buzzwords. I heard sales and trading. I heard investment banking. But uh, then I'm just throwing applications out of school is to any any job that has the word investment banking in it uh, without really knowing what I'm signing up for, right? And so it wasn't actually until I kind of took a step back and said, you know, let me drill down in on my own time and figure out what I actually want to do and what actually interests me, it, you know, before I started getting some true traction and kind of, you know, really was geared towards and steered towards uh, a position that I, you know, enjoy, which is, you know, kind of where I am now. That's great. That's great. It's great to see that, that path you took. And I like that. You said that six years ago, you had no clue at all about what you're doing now. But Didn't you even know, know the you... job existed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with that, what do you love about what you do? Uh, I think it has a very good mix of technical and like human, right? I work in Excel a lot. I work in PowerPoint a lot, whether it's modeling out transactions or, you know, what have you, you know, working close with like a structuring team or syndications desk or whatever. So it is it is technical for that respect, but it has a great mix of the human element in terms of the client communication, the client interaction, being able to be on the phone and the sales aspect as well, right? Because we are at right. the end of the day, we are selling. It's a bank for the business and making money. And so, you know, we have a P&L target. We have a yearly budget, but at the same time, when you're doing these hedge transactions with clients, you know, you're providing value to them. They want that. And then obviously we want to make money as well. So you know, it is, it's, it's mutually beneficial from that regard, um, which is another okay. thing that I like about the job because you don't feel like you're just shoving something down someone's throat for the sake of it. It is truly is, you know, they need this product. We offer this solution. We work together. We're able to get it done for them. They're happy with the rates that they're paying. You know, we're able to earn P&L as well and everybody's happy. 
Now on that, how is your success measured? Is it the money that you bring into the firm or surveys that your clients do or a mix or how does that work? How is your success measured? Uh, I mean, so our team is relatively small, which I have found is the case for this particular job kind of across broadly the market, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, all larger banks are going to have my role at them. Mm-hmm. But with our product set, it's such a niche market that the teams across banks are going to be ranging from maybe five to 20. Okay. You know, depending on the size of the bank, uh, depending on the the amount of clients that they cover. And I'm just talking on the rate side. So you could have commodity derivatives, foreign exchange derivatives, interest rate derivatives, equity derivatives. I'm just talking specifically for the interest rate derivatives side. So in that regard, it is a pretty, you know, lean team. Got off track there, but uh, no, the group right. broadly, right? So we do have a budget yearly as a group uh, that's measured between, uh, in our particular case, interest rate FX and commodity derivatives. And then down into the group level, we'd have a, a group budget as well. And then down into depending on what coverage you have. So we don't necessarily measure it by marketer, but it's more so by business line. So okay. whether it is regional commercial, REITs, REEFs, energy, corporate, mid-corporate, et cetera, all of those different business lines and verticals have a, a yearly budget associated with them. So obviously, as we do transactions, they go into their respective bucket in terms of the clientele and where they fall within which vertical. Okay. And, right. I, do, and I do have a personal, we, every person on the team has a P&L that's associated with them as well. Right. But again, that's just based on who they cover. So you know, the P&L right. can fluctuate depending on the P&L of the verticals that you cover. And are you going out and trying to reach new clients as well? Or is that different group, different level business development or? Yeah, no, uh, it's not a higher level or business development or anything. So no, we work very closely with the relationship managers, the RMs, the bankers. Um, So, you know, as bankers, obviously continually they go out and they call on new clients and they try to get us in the door, whether it's for doing it alone, whatever, some kind of, you know, bridge financing, et cetera. A lot of times we work very closely with the bankers in terms of prospecting and trying to get new clients. But a lot of times there are since from the corporate side specifically, a lot of the transactions that we do, we have to we do need to have an actual bank relationship with them outside of the derivative product. When you're on the institutional side, you can just kind of have one off transactions and be more so of a market maker in terms of, you know, someone just calling you up on a whim and saying, I want to do this trade. On our side, it's a lot of it is tied to credit agreements. It's tied to bond issuances. So it's secure debt underlying and kind of backpinning the risk on the derivative piece. Mm-hmm. So it is a very kind of close-knit operation that we have with our banking team, the relationship teams, ourselves, and the broader debt capital markets groups. You know, what I mean by that is our, our DCM guys and our syndications desk as well. Okay, great. You're all working as a team together. Definitely. All right. Now, on the flip side, what about challenges? What challenges do you see out there uh, in your line of business? Well, the immediate challenge is COVID. Um, but yeah, you know, right. outside of outside of uh, you know the current climate and environment, I would say the 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 biggest challenge really that that we deal with on a day in and day out basis is regulatory. Yeah. As I kind of alluded to earlier, post the financial crisis, the big Wall Street reforms and everything like that, Dodd Frank, Volcker Rule, et cetera, it it made the derivatives market uh, a lot, much more difficult to transact in. Just what kind of clients you can transact with, what is needed to even onboard these clients, what representations do they have to make before they're even in a place to be able to transact with you. Yeah. So a lot of kind of the uphill battles that we have have been pertaining to the regulatory component. And then I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of this 
you know, already, but, you know, with this transition away from LIBOR to, to SOFR, which is going to be the new kind of underpinning index in the broad financial market, yeah. a lot of the work that we've done, you know, in the past, maybe, I mean, really it's been the past couple of years, but more so in the past three to six months, because it really is kind of things are ramping up in terms of all the overhaul that's being done There's the ARC, which is like the, the regulatory committee that's across all the, you know, all the big banks. Everyone's kind of putting their heads together. Like how do we transition smoothly and cleanly from an index that has, you know, multiple trillions of dollars of financial contracts written on it daily <laughs> and move it just to a new index, you know, and that's obviously just going to be, or it is, it's just a total nightmare. So yeah. and, the, and recent projects or projects that we're working on right now that are the biggest ones that we have is definitely the LIBOR SOFR transition. But, you know, broadly speaking, the biggest obstacles that we face has always just kind of been that regulatory burden. That makes sense. All right. Now, do you have a most memorable moment? Uh, Yeah. So most memorable moment. I mean, Frankly, the best part about the job is when you're just on the phone with people trading. I mean, that's just, it's honestly just fun to do. So, I mean, I definitely remember maybe, you know, six or nine months in as an analyst in Houston and executing my first swap with someone and I maybe booked like 30 grand of P&L or something, but, you know, I was so excited about it. And then on the flip side, I've almost blown a couple of deals just because of oversights on my part as an analyst as well. So, you know, those are probably the bad moments when you get chewed out for something like that. But good moments are, you know, anytime you get to actually get done with a client on the phone. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right. So basically we're at the end of the interview, but I want to ask some quick hitter questions to people to get to know you a little bit better. But before Mm -hmm. we do, is there anything else you want to add, anything I might have missed asking you? Uh, no, man, I think, I think we covered a lot. No, it's like I said, I, I wasn't uh, entirely sure how intricate we wanted to get, but uh, <laughs> you were asking the question. So, you know, you were asking the right stuff. So I had to, uh, you know, it, it's been enjoyable. I think you, you definitely hit on all the, on the high points. Oh, great. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right. So let's get into these quick hitter questions. So the first, what's your favorite sports team? Favorite sports team, New England Patriots. Oh, okay. What's your favorite movie or show? Favorite movie? I don't know if I have a favorite movie. Uh, I would say, so like anything Scorsese or Tarantino, I'm watching. Yeah. From actor's perspective, I mean, a lot of this kind of overlap there. Like, you know, anything DiCaprio, I'm watching. Yeah. Uh, the Obviously, like the big names, those are you can't miss any of those. But yeah, definitely, I would just maybe drill down to directors more so than a specific movie. But definitely Tarantino, Scorsese, I'm all over those. Yeah, that's a good choice. Uh, favorite musical artist or group? Favorite artist, I mean, Lil Wayne, he's always been, okay. <laughs> always been, always been the favorite in the, you know, hip hop rap genre. But yeah, uh, music in general, man, I, I listen to legitimately all kinds of music. Um, oh, nice. But yeah, I think he's, he's the favorite. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? <sighs> Switzerland. Of the places nice. I've been, uh, Luzerne, Switzerland was probably my favorite. It was beautiful. It was oh. awesome, awesome place. All right, gotta write that down. And uh, favorite food or drink? Favorite food. Uh, keep it simple. I mean, I you can't go wrong with just like a really nice steak. I mean, and obviously, you know, in New York, there's no shortage of nice steakhouses to check out. But uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm just gonna keep it to one thing, I mean, I think I would just have to be steak. All right. Well, hey, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. 
Thank you. Bye.